everybody, you are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk, and with me today is Dan. Hey! And also with us is my four-month-old son. So if you hear any squeaking or snorting or anything like that in the background, that is uh, that is Abel, or it's potentially Dan, but uh, more likely is Abel. True, true. So, um... <laughs> Today we're going to be talking about Revelation chapter 6 and 7, um, the seal judgments, the seal judgments proper, um, as well as then in chapter 6, as well as then in chapter 7, the uh, 144,000. And so just uh, by way of some overview, Dan, you preached this passage over the course of three sermons. Um, and the overall point of this, of this, you know, these two chapters together is that only God's sealed people will come through God's sealed judgments. Um, and there's a, there's a point in this passage where it helped me, helped me identify this textual marker. I know there's, there's two points where we get this language of standing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Go ahead and show us yeah, where so those at, are. At the end of chapter 6, at, at the end of the sixth sealed judgment, that's the sort of final cry of the people on earth who are asking to be they want to be hidden from the one seated on the throne from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of the wrath has come in verse 17 uh, and then they ask who can stand and then uh, we get the answer to that question who can stand in chapter 7 in particular in 7 9 we are told uh, after this i looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation from all tribes peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb. So, who can stand before the throne? Well, here's the answer: a great multitude can stand before the throne. Yeah, before the Lamb. So that's the overall theme. You get the you get this picture of a scroll that's that the Lamb takes in chapter five from the hand of the one seated on the throne, which is the Father. And then, as the seals, these like wax impressions on that scroll are broken, judgments come. And um, eventually it leads to that question, who can stand? And and we get the answer in chapter 7. And actually the word seal in chapter 6 for those seal judgments, the seals being broken, is the Mm -hmm. same word Mm -hmm. for the people then in chapter 7 who are said to be sealed, Mm -hmm. that is like protected from the judgments. So there's a clear link there as well. And just some some just kind of big picture overview. Um, What's interesting is that we see even in these chapters that um, Christ is the one who is in control of these judgments, and yet um, the judgments themselves are calamities and even mm-hmm. in even things that we would describe as like evil things. Mm-hmm. Um, and what's interesting is this: this ties into a biblical um, theology that we understand that God is in control of all things, mm-hmm. even things that are evil. He has His control over those things; they're on His leash, and yet He is not. Um, himself culpable for the evil. He utilizes evil without um, being the one conducting the evil or involved in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You see this all throughout scripture. Yeah. In particular, you're referring to the first four seals yeah. that are uh, the, the four horsemen come out riding or riding horses. And those are the like ongoing calamities throughout the ages from the time of the ascension of Christ. As he reigns, he ushers in this final age which John calls the tribulation in one nine. Yeah. Um, that that these ongoing calamities on earth that are universal, uh, they're unequally distributed, uh, but they will they will continue until 
the lamb returns or in this particular passage until the great the great calamity which is defined as the great day of the wrath yeah. of the one seated on the throne and the wrath of the lamb it made me think a little bit of like habakkuk where in habakkuk you know god is using uh, i believe in habakkuk it's the babylonians um he's using these he can use nations that are evil Mm-hmm. And and still be holy in conducting yeah. his own purposes. Yeah. Um, and so the, we see we see the same thing in Revelation where God is absolutely holy, and yet God is using these judgments and even using like human affairs and things like that to bring right. about his purposes. But as you said, w- just by way of review to make sure we're all kind of understanding the overall way that Revelation works, you might say, is when we get these series of judgments, when we get the seal judgments here, eventually we get the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments, as well as the other, you know, other portions of the book, like we're going to get kind of this cosmic warfare section from Mm -hmm. chapter 12 to the beginning of 15. Like these are, we would argue that these are portraits of, of history from the ascension to the second coming, Mm -hmm. from the point Mm -hmm. of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascending into heaven until the second coming. We have evidence of that in the fact that these, they all sort of close with the climax of history yeah so like in in this section with the seals the sixth seal is like the final it's a depiction mm-hmm. of like the final judgment yeah. coming yeah and in the other in the other uh in the trumpets and the bowls and such you get that language of well as mm-hmm. well as like the kingdom has fully arrived in the seventh yeah. trumpet yeah and, and it's fully done it says in the bowls yeah, yeah. and you yeah like you also get in this chapter seven where wiping every tear from the eyes which shows up obviously in chapter uh, 21 which, with the, the new creation yeah the wonderful picture yeah uh, but it's it's already happening early in the book uh, we also see when when we're given the picture of the final judgment in chapter six or it ushering in the earth is already kind of being destroyed like stars are falling onto the earth the sky is gone the mountains are gone and so that's that's why we really hold strongly to the recapitulation view where it's like the the recounting of history from the ascension of jesus to his second coming through the seal judgments and then we'll start that cycle over yeah so to to just reiterate that it these when we read about these judgments like in the seal judgments or the other judgments to follow like we're we would not be saying that these are you know things that are awaiting some seven-year tribulation in the future or that they are you know we should line them up with some specific thing in church history right they may have you know, this was written to people in the first century, obviously, and they may have some particular reference to things, you know, in that context. Like sometimes we do see clear indications of that, like allusions to the Roman Empire and things like that. But they're, they would not be exhausted by those things, even if that was the case. Yeah. That these are things that are depicting. We understand that these are these are sort of judgments and realities that occur across um, history leading up to the second coming of Christ. And then with that. If that's the case, then each of these sets of judgments, as Dan says, is really a recapitulation. It's kind of a, we use the illustration um, at the beginning of the series of like a, if you're watching football and you see someone score, that you're watching on TV and they you see someone score a touchdown, they'll often show a replay from different angles. It's not that you're seeing multiple touchdowns every time you see a replay. It's the same touchdown. Mm-hmm. It's the same play that occurred. You're just seeing it from different angles. Mm-hmm. And that's what we have going on in Revelation where the seals are going to present one one sort of uh, perspective, and then the trumpets are going to present another, and so forth. Mm-hmm. And so just to kind of uh, situate ourselves in, in having a proper understanding of these things heading into the book. Yeah. 
So like these first four seals, if somebody were to ask us, when are these going to happen? We'd say, well, they did happen. They did happen. And, and they are happening. They are happening. And, they and probably, they're going to happen. They probably will yeah. continue. And happen. they'll happen until we get to the final seals yeah. uh, when the final judgment comes in. And I know I know one thing we didn't necessarily touch on in the sermon, or I didn't get to, or that kind of really think to cover is the idea. Maybe the question comes to mind in terms of, it, does this make God evil? If he's controlling the evil one to usher in these calamities, because all four of the horsemen seem to give indication that they're, they're evil powers. Again, we're in a vision. Um, but of course, we, we know throughout Scripture that God always does what is right and just. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, Deuteronomy 4, the rock, his work is perfect for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity, just and upright is he. Uh, so God... Um, God has uh, authority over the enemy and at times stops the enemy from bringing evil uh, calamities on the earth and at times uh, allows it, in fact, decrees it to bring about uh, we, we might call like uh, warning judgments, so to say, mm-hmm. uh, sort of like, you know, you feel the rumbling of a train, you know that something greater is coming. It's pointing to the greater judgment that's to come, but also to purify his church uh, throughout these ages. And so um, God is always going to get his work done, uh, even through the enemy. And that's ex- exactly what we saw at the greatest point in history, as God uh, used and moved the hearts of Pontius Pilate, Herod, uh, the, the people of Israel um, who were there to crucify the Christ. Yeah. And that's what we see in Acts 4. Uh, yeah. The disciples clearly giving God the, the credit yeah. for moving all the, those people's hearts to bring about that wonderful victory yeah. but it wasn't through calamity i think even yeah in chapter four they say that and i think even in chapter two it talks about like to bring about to, cru- to crucifying christ to bring about all that your hand has foreordained to take yeah. place yeah um so yeah it's yeah it's a great that's a great um it's a great truth to to reflect on um i want to now with the time we have left um ask you specifically we'll take our time specifically now to focus on in chapter seven the issue here of the 144,000 that are sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Um, mm-hmm. And so you you did a good job kind of covering, uh, uh, you know, the breadth of these two chapters. This was probably the area where we just could only touch on a little bit in the sermon. Mm-hmm. And I know you wanted to kind of go in on further depth. And I know people have questions about this. And I guess one of the reasons people have questions is oftentimes there, you know, there's a popular interpretation out there that, tries to take Revelation as literally as possible. Um, we would have a lot of hesitancies and disagreement with that just over the nature that this is apocalyptic mm-hmm. literature. It's mm-hmm. meant to be symbolic. But with those folks who kind of take want to take these things super literally, they would take the 144,000 sealed um, Israelites here as like, these are actual, you know, Jewish people from mm-hmm. these tribes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Let's talk about, you took the view, and I would agree, obviously, that, that this is a symbol, this 144,000 mm-hmm. um, is a symbol mm-hmm. of the church that then later gets developed in 7, 9, and following. So in the first eight verses, you have the portrait of the 144,000 sealed, just mm-hmm. to be clear, the first eight verses. And then in 9 and following, um, we would argue that when he then turns and he sees people from every tribe, nation, and tongue that that is that we're talking about the same reality. The mm-hmm. hundred forty four thousand are, you yeah, know, the the people from all these nations, yeah. tribes, and tongues. Mm-hmm. That is the church. Yeah, I had them labeled as um, one through eight being a people sealed. 
by God on earth. So you also have a geographical change. Okay. And yeah, then yeah. Uh, people standing before God on, in heaven. So a, a people sealed by God on earth and then a people standing before God in heaven. Uh, to, but those are the yeah. same people. Yeah. Yep. So walk us through what we're going to do now is Dan's going to walk us through the arguments, some textual reasons why the 144,000 should be seen as the same group as what falls in verse 9 and following. Yeah. So in other words, why the 144,000 is a symbol of the church, people yeah. from all tribes and tongue who believe in Jesus. Yeah. So I'll kind of just walk through some of this will be repeat from the sermon and then we'll add some additional reasoning for it. So again, you have the, depending on your approach, you have three basic options for these uh, these folks uh, who are 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. So you have two components going on. You have a number and you have like a label uh, in terms of the tribe of the sons of Israel. So the one approach is to say both of those are literal. It's a literal number, 144,000 exactly, uh, as well as they're literally uh, biological descendants from the tribes of Israel. So they're, they're Jewish by ethnicity. Uh, that would be one approach. Uh, another approach would be to say that they are literally biological Jews. They're from the tribes of Israel, but the number itself is symbolic. Uh, that's a pretty popular view as well. Um, and then the, the third view, the third approach would be to say both the number and the sons of tribes of the sons of Israel are symbolic, which is the view we would take. <clears throat> because again, we're in apocalyptic literature. When we come to these things, our first approach is, I'm going to assume it's symbolic unless I'm proven otherwise. Yeah. We've already seen numbers being used symbolically, even in this very same pass, uh, you know, section, uh, same paragraph, the, the angel standing in the four corners of the earth holding the four winds of the earth. It's, it's kind of this picture of like this whole earth, the completion, right? It's, um, that because the number four is like that. The four corners of the earth. Yep. Yeah. Uh, number seven, we've seen multiple times. The seven horns on the lamb, the seven eyes on the lamb, which is like, the, which is the spirit, the eyes of the spirit. Uh, what's, what's he called in chapter five? Um, the spirits, seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, like the, the work of the spirit of God going to all the seed, all, all the things. earth. So, like, that would be one of even the initial arguments. Is sure, just like yeah, that could be our first. It, we're in apocalyptic <laughs> literature. Um, so we, whereas the the general, like, the principle in most types of writing is it, it's literal unless there's clear indication it's symbolic. Yeah. In apocalyptic literature, that's kind of reversed. Yeah. You should assume things are symbolic unless there's clear indication yeah. that it's not. Yeah. Um, the other thing, too, is even outside of just the general expectation of, you know, symbolism as well as numbers are symbolic. The fact, like the specific numbers chosen, 12 times yep, 1,000, yep. like 12 is clearly a mm -hmm. number that it's, in other words, if we were, we're talking about, if it was like some other number, like say 3,400 or something, mm -hmm. that'd be a little bit, you know, like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. But like the fact that it's 12, mm -hmm. a multiple of 12 and 12 mm -hmm. is like, Symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel. Mm -hmm. It's symbolic of the fullness of God's people, in mm -hmm. other words, mm -hmm. multiplied by a thousand mm -hmm. to kind of say a multitude. Mm -hmm. So you have the fullness of God's people, 
yeah. by a multitude. You also get um, the 12 uh, apostles that show up later in the book right. as well. And so 12 is clearly a number for the people of God. Yeah. And that's what we're dealing with specifically in this chapter yeah. is the people of mm-hmm. God. Not, mm-hmm. So in other words, it's not only the numbers, but then the, the type of numbers and the yeah. type, like what we're actually dealing with. It all points to symbolism. Yeah. So then you have 12 times 12. And then you either say 12 times times a thousand, which in that time period, the culture, a thousand is a, is a really big number. And you actually yeah. see a thousand used throughout the book. Like when it says myriads and myriads of angels in the next paragraph. Uh, and then he says in thousands of thousands, yeah. uh, as well as at the end of the book, a thousand years. So a thousand, you know. It'd be if, like it'd be like if your kid is like, I told you a thousand times, you know. Like, yeah. They're not being literal. They just mean I've told you. Like yeah. Beyond what I can count. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So that's the way that we use in our age. Sometimes when we think of a thousand, we don't think of it as that big of a number in our culture. Yeah. At times, like if, if you, if, if I told you the government's going to send you a thousand dollar stimulus check. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I think that happened. Yeah. It's you like, know, it's, it's kind of a big number, but it's yeah. not that much. Yeah. But in that age, like a thousand, it's huge. Yeah. Uh, so, or it's, so it's either 12 times 12 times a thousand or it's 12 times thousand and 12, 12 times 12 <laughs> and then times 10 times 10 times 10 kind of the the okay. threefold times 10 which again 10 being kind of like this completion gotcha number as well um so All right. yeah so, so that would be is- a second argument really yeah so apocalyptic literature the number itself yep um so a third would be that the use of the word servants we see in verse three do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our god so there's kind of two parts to this, so number three and four. Um, the 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 way that the word servants gets used throughout, when it's used to sort of like generically uh, of the people of God, it's it's used as holistically. It's the whole people of God, and it just refers to them as the servants of God. Yeah. So that would seem to indicate when you he- read it here as generically that it would be referring to the whole people of God. And let me just give one example yeah. of that. Um, so like at the beginning of the book, it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants, the things yeah, that right. soon take place. Yeah. So that's, that's a common way that this word servant is used. If it's used in a different way, it's normally pretty obvious. And so yeah. when it's just kind of used generically, as Dan said, it's, it's not meant to be referring to some subgroup of just yeah. like Jewish believers. Right. It's referring to the church um, yeah. believers in general. And so the fact that he calls them the servants chapter seven indicates that we're talking about the church here. Yeah. Yep. Uh, and then the, kind of the, the phrase, the servants of God uh, being labeled that gets contrasted throughout the book with the servants of the beast who are also labeled yeah. uh, there. They receive a mark. Uh, these people receive a seal, which are two different words. Uh, and it gets used throughout the book like that. Um, but the servants of the beast or those who give allegiance to the beast or who worship the beast, who follow the beast, they get marked as belonging to him. Contrast this, you would assume then all of those who don't worship the beast are also sealed by God. Mm-hmm. And so you have two people groups throughout the book. Everybody gets labeled. It's a matter of who your allegiance is to yeah. and who's who owns you. And again, we're working, this argument is built off the assumption, like we're working from the assumption that the beast is not just like this future reality right? and that the mark of the beast isn't some like microchip to come in the future or something. I'm kind of being, I'm kind of tongue in cheek. Yeah, but yeah. like, like sometimes people think of the mark of the beast as like a future thing that's going to come. Whereas the revelation depicts it as a spiritual reality that's existed 
during the entire church age. Like yeah. anyone who mm-hmm. worships the beast of that age is mm-hmm. has the mark of the beast. They have the yeah. mark that they belong to the beast. They worship the beast. That's where their allegiance is. Mm-hmm. And your point mm-hmm. is like, well, if we expect, if the mark of the beast is depicted as this kind of universal reality for every unbeliever, mm-hmm. mm-hmm. you would expect the seal, which is clearly contrasted yeah. with it. So yeah. you get the mark of the beast in chapter 13, and then right on the heels of it in chapter 14, you mm-hmm. have the sealed the sealed people again show mm-hmm. up. Like there's clearly a contrast going on. Yeah. You expect the ceiling to be for all believers yeah. then. Yeah. Just like the mark of the beast yeah. is for all unbelievers. Yeah. And maybe I could just insert here, this is not going follow keeping the argument going, but this the way the mark gets used is, is sort of like an imitation of the seal. Right. Like the the mark can't do anything for you in the end. It only gets you judged. But the seal Protects actually you. gets you into yeah. cha- chapter 7, verses 9 to 17. Like yeah. that's the, how you get to stand in heaven. It's the guarantee that God will get you through to persevere to the end, holding the testimony of the Christ. So it's uh, that's why uh, William Hendrickson in his commentary he, he just says this line that I loved. He just said, this sealing of God is the most precious thing under heaven. Mm. Uh, that just really struck me as like, man, like, do I think of the sealing of God as the most precious thing under heaven at all? Yeah. Uh, and if, if that's true, if it's the sealing of God that actually gets you to be standing before the throne, then indeed it must be. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that was the, that was the fourth, I think. Uh, Maybe. Right, we did the yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so number five, um, it's you see again in verse three. See, do not harm earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So uh, we can That's go chapter seven, verse five. Yep, okay. uh, verse three or verse. Three. Um, if oh, yeah. we go forward to chapter fourteen, again we're going to see this hundred forty-four thousand. This is the only other place in the book that these folks show up, and they have something on their forehead uh, that we read in verse one. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. <clears throat> so this seems to indicate that the seal that they received earlier in the book, chapter 7, that what we're dealing with, is actually, now it's being spelled out for us, it is the name of the Father and the name of the Lamb written on their on their foreheads mm-hmm. right because so we have this forehead thing happening yeah in chapter 14 <clears throat> chapter 14 is the other is the other point of the book where they show up yeah the sealed group yeah. now we do see other people who have something written on their forehead mm-hmm. indeed the name of the father and the name of the son yeah which well, wh- wh- where are those people so that is ch- <laughs> <laughs> so that is in chapter three uh to the church of philadelphia which is primarily gentiles they're, yeah. they're not from the tribes of the sons of Israel. Uh, there we read in verse 12, The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven in my own new name. It would seem to indicate, it would give good reason for us to assume that the name that they received uh, would be on their forehead. It's the very same name, the Father and the Lamb yeah. as well. So the idea of the, in other words, linking chap- the group in chapter 7 to the group in chapter 14, which seems pretty clear. Mm-hmm. We're talking about the sealed yep. group in yep. both those. But then also linking 14 to chapter 3 with the church in Philadelphia, which would mm-hmm. be a church filled with Gentiles. Yes. Which- Show is that the, the sealed group has to be symbolic of Gentiles. Yes. Yeah. And 
uh, to your point from earlier, it's present day and as John's writing. Yeah. This is not something future that he's referring to. It's, yeah. it's happening right now. Yeah, it shows that this is a present reality. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right, All right that was number five. Um, we have uh, four or five more to go here. Um, let's go to... Uh, okay, so we'll just, just even the, the use of the the genealogical list itself. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I talked about this in the sermon. Uh, just the fact that there are some irregularities that can, seem to not be able to answer, except for to say, John seems to be intentionally setting up the list this way so that you would read it and go, that's symbolic of something. Yeah. Like, We're talking about the list in chapter 7, verses 5 through 8. Yeah, 12,000 from, the 12,000 from. Like, there's just some weird... There's some things that are a little bit unexpected. Yes, yeah. That point to it being... It's probably symbolic because, like, why else would these abnormalities yeah. exist in it? Yeah. So this uh, a list in this fashion doesn't show up anywhere else in the scripture in terms of the order and the people, the specific people that yeah. are in it. We do get uh, lists. Yeah. But like the way it's listed here, yeah. is not present elsewhere. Correct. This yep. is like deliberately different. Yes. So a couple abnormalities that stand out. Um, first of all, Judah gets moved to the front, which isn't really that. Um, not that that's not shocking because even though he's the fourth born of Jacob's sons, uh, the promise comes through him from the Genesis 49, the promise of the Messiah. Messiah yep. yeah. <clears throat> and of course, we've already been told of the lion from the tribe of Judah in chapter five. He is worthy to open up the scroll. So as you're going through the, the list of the tribes of the sons of Israel to move Judah to the front would, would make sense. It's fitting not only to the whole Bible, but even to Revelation. Correct. With its emphasis on the lion of the tribe of Judah. Yep. Yep. So that would put Reuben, who is the firstborn uh, biologically, into the second place, which we see in the list. Yes. It goes to Judah, to Reuben. But then, this is where it gets interesting. Then it goes to Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Manasseh. So you have four sons who got moved, bumped up in front of Simeon and Levi. So biologically, the first four sons were Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Here, Judah gets bumped up to number one. Reuben gets to number two. We get that. But then you have four sons inserted before Simeon yeah, and like Levi. Why yeah, why is that? Simeon yeah. is now put down to number seven. Levi is number eight. Why? Well, I don't know. Yeah. All, it's just an abnormality. Do people, people like try to? Do some of the I've commentaries never, try to come up with reasons? Or? I've never heard a, an argument for for why Simeon gets put to seven okay. and Levi to eight. No. Yeah. So the, yeah. So that's kind of interesting going on. Yeah. What's the next abnormality? Uh, so the next one would be that Dan is out. Dan okay. gets eliminated, the tribe of Dan. Um, there are some ways that people try to argue that. You have uh, the primary one seems to be that Dan was involved in the golden calves uh, back when the, the kingdom of Israel split. Uh, where you had the northern tribe, Israel, and the southern tribe, the tribe of Judah. Uh, if you remember, Jeroboam set up the... Set up the two golden calves, one in Bethel and one yeah. in Dan. Dan kind being like the north, Bethel being the south. Competing worship centers so that people right. wouldn't go to Judah yeah. to worship. Yeah. And so Dan then, um, some would argue, gets he, he takes the, the, the brunt of the blame for leading Israel into idolatry. So now he's left and so out. So he's eliminated. Yeah. The problem with that, you know, that happens after uh, Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes the throne and then Jeroboam takes the north. Um, You know, you're talking years and years and years later when Ezekiel comes along and and the the people are being exiled, the the southern tribe. 
uh, and he's also writing in exile during the time of the exile. He p- looks forward to this final day, end day, eschatological Israel uh, at the end of the book, and he has a list. And the first person on the list in the tribes of sons of Israel is Dan. He's not eliminated. So yeah, he's as, still included. Yeah. yeah. So it, it, if if there was some sort of a hint, you would say, like that perhaps that would happen to Dan, like early on, because he let, let's just go with the idea. Dan is the primary reason why the people of Israel uh, were led into idolatry. And if you started to catch a hint that maybe God's going to totally eliminate him, Ezekiel solves that for you. Yeah. Says, yeah, that might be true. But guess what? God's going to restore him. Yeah. Would be the picture in Ezekiel. Here, Dan's gone. Like, why is that? I mean, if, if you're looking for like a literal interpretation, I think then you have a, a, an issue that's hard to solve. I would say, or we would say, like, it seems that John's in, intentionally doing that to indicate to us that this is this is symbolic. So this is a symbolic list, so don't take it as literal. Uh, so I don't necessarily have a reason why Dan's gone, other than the fact that I think John is trying to set up a symbolic list for yeah. us. So like your argument in most of these is like, well, with the Judah, you can kind of see why potentially. Yeah. But yeah. outside of that, it's sort of like, I don't have a reason. And I think the fact that I don't have a reason points to it being symbolic. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Like, my reason not really is a I'm good... not supposed to. Yeah. I don't need a reason. Yeah. <laughs> like, the fact, there's not a good reason. Yeah. Like, outside of the fact that it's just different for the sake of being different. Yeah. kind of catch your attention. Especially if you were like a Jewish reader. Like this would catch you. These things would catch your attention. Yes. Yeah. You'd be like, John doesn't know what he's doing. You're like, like what? <laughs> right. That's true. You'd either assume yeah. that or you'd assume, oh, maybe he does know what he's doing. Yeah. Yep. So what, yeah. there's another, I, yep. I think there's, there's at least one more. One more. Yep. Yeah. So there's one. Um, so you have Levi in here at number eight. Sometimes, dep- depending on what the kind of goal of the genealogy would be, um, if it's a, a land promise, Levi is taken out of the list because mm-hmm. that's the, the tribe of the priests. They were to be dispersed throughout the land and the tribes would take care of the priests. They were given, they, the leave, tribe of Levi wasn't given land. They were given right. like cities, cities to live in. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So they were, they're not to be included when we're talking about lists for land. Yes. But um, they're included here. Yep. So they're, they're here. When Levi is out, uh, Joseph is also taken out. Um, because once you take Levi out, you're left with, 11 you take out joseph now you're left with 10 but at the end of genesis right before jacob died he calls joseph in with joseph's two sons that were born in egypt to joseph manasseh and ephraim and jacob claims these two sons as his own so he tells uh, joseph at the end of revelation these two sons ephraim and manasseh are mine every other child you every other son you have after this are yours yeah but these two are mine and so, so ephraim and manasseh if if that's confusing or unfamiliar, they kind of get included, like correct, uh, even though they're really the grandsons of Jacob. Yes, um, they get included as part of the as as representatives of the twelve tribes. Yes. So when the land is given in the promised land allotted to the to the tribes of Israel, Manasseh gets a portion of the land. Ephraim gets a portion of the land. Joseph doesn't, but he does through, through his them. sons. Yeah, yes, right. Um, they're kind of, so they like represent him in other words. Yes, yeah. So, so they're included here. Well, or actually, no, that's, Manasseh. That's is, why but, it's interesting. Yeah, Manasseh yeah. is, but Ephraim's not, and then Joseph is. Yes. So like, that's yeah. not that like so never just, happens. Yeah, right? that just gets a weird because if Joseph's that's included, not like Manasseh and Ephraim would be assumed, and yep. if Manasseh is in there, you'd expect Ephraim to be then in there, right. and then not Joseph. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So there's so. just no explanation for why it happens that way, yeah. other than you say that John is clearly setting up a symbolic tribes of Israel for us. Yeah. All right. So that's 
uh, that's another argument. What's, yeah, I forget what's what the, number we're on, but who cares? What the we'll number, keep going. Numbers aren't important in yeah. the Book of Revelation. <laughs> that's right. There's some bonds. Um, I think this was seven, actually, but maybe not. Okay. So uh, the next one would be the movement um, from the hearing of the 144,000 to the seeing of something. And, yeah. and this we see throughout the book. So in chapter five, uh, John heard about the lion from the tribe of Judah, and then he turned and he looked and he saw a lion or a lamb or a lamb. <laughs> he heard yeah. a lamb lion and he yeah. saw a lamb he no. turned and saw a lamb no, he you're heard right heard a lion and he saw a lamb correct yeah. thank you that's a it's an important correction there uh in t- chapter 21 we see a similar thing where john hears about the bride and he turns and looks and sees the city yeah so you have a shift in the imagery going from what he hears, then he looks and he sees something different. It's like a device in the Revelation where it's taking, you know, something of some sort of imagery that we that the reader would have been familiar with, like a lion. You expect this kind of warrior king from the tribe of Judah, in other words. And mm-hmm. then, oh, what does this lion look like, though? What does this yeah. lion show up as? Oh, it shows up as a sacrificial lamb. Yeah. So it's interpreting the, the second imagery Correct. is actually yeah. like interpreting the first. Correct. And so... Yeah. The argument here would be then the same thing happens where he hears a sealed number, mm-hmm. but then when he looks and he sees, here's the interpretation. Mm-hmm. What is the true Israel? What is the true people of God from all these different tribes? Mm-hmm. It is actually now fulfilled in a people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. Right. Yes. And so it clearly shows that device shows that we're we're dealing with the interpretation of the symbol. The first yes. half is a symbol. The second half is its like true meaning, you might say. Correct. Yep. Yep. It's well stated. And it does raise, maybe this is a good as good time as ever to park on like, okay, so then why, like why use, because even if we say, well, the 144,000 is a symbol of the church, it mm-hmm. still raises mm-hmm. the question, like why does, why use the symbol mm-hmm. of 144,000? Yeah. And there's a couple, there's the yeah, most there's obvious. there's two major ones it seems. Okay, go, yeah. go for the yeah. two. I mean, so the, the most obvious one. Which is probably assumed in the second one, I, I would assume, right? Well, here, I would, I would think so, yeah. Yeah, you go ahead and yeah. share the two. Probably, like, I, the, for people that hold kind of this more symbolic view, uh, I could be wrong in this, but it seems like the more simple, more kind of popular view of it would be that it's this complete, vast number of people, the true people of God. Yeah. Uh, it's 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 big, it's massive, but it's, it's complete. It's God's whole complete people and the reason it would be depicted in terms of the tribes Mm -hmm. of israel is to show that the church is the fulfillment of everything israel has it was intended to be the 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 errors of the promise the true israel the eschatological end time israel come to fruition of jew and gentile brought together yes Um, the other view would be the the census for the army kind of idea yeah right yep because a lot of times when these genealogies are are listed in the old testament uh like one one scholar argues that uh, they are primarily used to, to count how many how many males older than 20 are able are to fight, able to fight. so yeah. it's this is this is the gathering of the army to, to see how many how many we can have yeah um, <clears throat> and those aren't mutually exclusive views because no. even if you argue because I think the army one that that, that seemed um, that seems to have weight in my opinion just because there is a theme throughout the book of kind of the the war the, this like war motif mm-hmm. throughout mm-hmm. the book. And even the idea of like the lion and the lamb, you have mm-hmm. the lion is kind of this warrior king and then mm-hmm. interpreted as like, oh, unexpectedly mm-hmm. he wars by being slain. Yeah. Here it would kind of be like, what's the army of God? Here's the army of God. It's the full people of God. It's 12,000 from every tribe. So you still yeah. get that fullness mm-hmm. idea. But if there's an army idea as well, 
it gets interpreted as people who then it says are coming out of the tribulation slain so that Mm -hmm. the way that in other words the idea would be that the way the church wages its war is unexpectedly by mm-hmm. dying yep. in the similar way that Jesus wages his war unexpectedly yeah. by dying. Yeah, that would, I think, be the strength of that argument if, if you went that route, because you do have, it would sort of be coming out of chapter six with that question, who can stand? And it's like, well, here's an army that can stand. Yeah. Um, and how are they going to stand? Um, it It's this phrase at, at the end of, uh, in 14, 714, these are the ones who are coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb, which might not actually be talking about the atonement. They washed it their, could be. It, yeah. yeah, it could be, but it might actually be also kind of following the same pattern of chapter five that you're pointing out that the fact that they went out to conquer, but just as the lamb was slain, they too, uh, followed the same path and were bloodied yeah. up. And regardless, that's a big theme throughout the book is yeah. that believers fall in the path of Jesus and are depicted in Revelation as like martyrs. At least in many cases, yeah. that's true of believers. And if not, if not in reality, becoming martyrs, like in principle, mm-hmm. committing in faith to a, a life of sacrif- yeah. like sacrifice for Christ. Yeah. So yeah. regardless, I think everybody, which which no matter which route you went on that, I think both groups would say it is the true people of God who um, come through the tribulation in great pain and sorrow often, but it's staying on the other side. Like they're the true people of God because they're in the Christ. But that's why it gets depicted that way. So it's because it's one thing to kind of say, we're saying the 144,000 is a church. We still have to ask why are they described this way? And those would be some of the reasons why. Yeah. Yeah. All right. right, So number, yeah. Next one would be, um, so like we pointed out, the chapter 6 ends with this question, who can stand? You, it's, It would be weird for him to leap over section, the, the paragraph 1 to 8, and then answer the question, who can stand, and then get to it finally in 7-9 by saying, well, the multitude can stand. Yeah. Like, well, what do we say about the section in between it? This is just how, like, when you're looking, when you're reading the scriptures and you're looking at the structure of the passage... Um, you you want to be asking how these parts work together, right? right. So c- clearly, the question "Who can stand?" gets answered in seven nine. Like the whole, you might say, the whole point of the passage is clearly about you know this group of people, these believers that can stand yeah. before God's yeah. judgment. And it just raises a question: Well, if that's what the whole passage is about, you have the clear link in chapter six: Who can stand? And and then partway through chapter seven, these are the people who can stand. It just kind of leaves yeah. the question like. Well, you would expect verses one through eight, the 144,000 to have something to do with that. And if it doesn't have something to do with that, if it's not talking about the same people, that is those who can stand, then what are they doing here? What's the point? Like that's where I would, that's what I would, that'd be one of my first questions I'd have to Mm -hmm. someone who takes this as like a literal Jewish people. I'd be like, what's the point of John? Mm -hmm. What, what is this doing in the Mm -hmm. passage? Mm -hmm. Like, what is it helping us? What is it conveying? Right. What's it communicating? Yeah. Whereas in the route that we're taking, it fits in with yeah. the very point of the passage. Yeah. It's a symbol of the people that can yeah. stand. Yeah. And it's showing how they can stand. Yep. They're sealed. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah. Yep. So yeah. kind of the movement that's, of the right. passage is an argument. Yeah. Um, all right. Then we can get a little bit more from chapter 14. Again, this is where we find the 144,000 once again. Uh, there we see in verse 3 of chapter 14. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who 
who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as firstfruits for God and the Lamb. <clears throat> so twice in this passage here, verse 3 and verse 4, you have this uh, translated redeemed. This shows up uh, earlier in chapter 5 about some people that the Lamb the redeemed. Lamb redeems. Uh, there yeah. it gets translated as ransomed. Chapter 5, verse 9. Word, yep, same word. Uh, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seal, seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God. And here we are, from every tribe and language and people and nation. So the re- the sealed people in chapter 14 are described as redeemed, and that word redeemed, um, when we see it in chapter 5, is referring to the redeemed people from every right. nation. Yeah. So showing that uh, this would be, you know, I'm sure people could argue against this or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not a solid case, but just one more right. piece of the puzzle yep. that kind of points in the direction of this 144,000 is the redeemed people from every nation. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. And, and that's, I mean, that's a good point. Not any of these necessarily are like the golden. Yeah. yeah. But so you start some making are, a cumulative case. Yeah. Like, huh. Some of them are much stronger than others. This is probably a less strong yeah. one, but it's one more thing to kind of to mm-hmm. consider. Yep. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, the last one I would point to, it comes in chapter 14, verse 4. Uh, we have this a description, uh, more particular, who John says are these 144,000. Uh, in chapter 7, it was the tribes of the sons of Israel. He doesn't name them that here, but he calls them something else, or kind of describes them in another way in verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes. So here, the 144,000 are only men, and they're only men who are virgins. So that would be very interesting. If you took it literal. Yes. Like, why does it have to be men, Mm -hmm. and why do they have to be virgins? Yeah. So it would seem to indicate, if, if you took it as literal, that as at this time period, God looked on the earth, and the only people... Who were true to Christ that were men. Yeah. Because we're assuming we're seal means yes. like you're able to stand in the judgment. Yep. So yep. the only people that would he would that are sealed to be able to stand in the judgment are men and virgins. Yeah. Which Why? Uh, yeah, I, I don't it just doesn't seem to line up. Like is a fe- like females can't be saved at this time period right. from God's judgment or yeah. and sexuality was given yeah. by God as have, a good thing. Yeah. yeah. Why, so that's not evil. So if you're not a virgin, we're not even talking about like immor- we're not talking about immorality. No. We're talking about just being a virgin, like you can yeah. be sexually pure in marriage, yeah, and all just the virgins are able to stand before God's right. judgment. Yeah. yeah. Now I'm assuming that the, the people who take this literally would have to say, well, the ceiling is not just about standing before God's judgment; it's something else, and that's why it can be a, like this smaller class. But you have to go back to chapter six and seven, and, mm-hmm. sh- and it, it's clearly showing we're talking about sealed before God's judgment. Mm-hmm. Um, this wouldn't be just men and just virgin men. Yeah. Yeah, and a lot and a lot of people would take this, and I think rightfully so, that being um, virgins is is symbolic, symbolic right? Yeah, it's purity. They have followed the lamb, and rather than whoring after the beast or the the prostitute, the great prostitute, right? They have stayed true to Christ, and that gets used throughout the Old Testament. It's like mm-hmm. when you go after idols, you are whoring after other gods, and you it's are, a big theme in Revelation yes, too, where yes. you have. Two, you, you have a contrast of two women. You have the harlot and then the bride, mm-hmm. the bride, the New Jerusalem. You have people that go after and they they whore after the idols. They worship the beast. So sexual immorality is a is a clear you know image throughout the book 
of unfaithfulness of yeah. worshiping non-gods yeah and so if yep. vir- virginity here would be uh, an idea of like purity fitting with the bride and yeah. things like that yep yeah and so if we're supposed to take um the description of the 144,000 is symbolic in this passage it would just only seem obvious then as well logical to take it as symbolic in chapter yeah. 7 for that and for all the other reasons we gave and let me throw one other one that kind of fits with the jumping back one yeah. is in chapter 14, it says these, the 144,000 have been redeemed. We talk about redemption, but it says redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God, the lamb. So one, they're redeemed from mankind, which if they were just Israelites, man, you wouldn't, mm-hmm. mankind is like this word for humanity. Mm-hmm. Like that's a very broad word. You wouldn't need yeah. to say that. You might say redeemed from Israel or something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. But then also he describes them as first fruits. And at the end of that chapter, it's going to talk, end of chapter 14, it's going to talk about the harvest, the harvest mm-hmm. of God collecting his mm-hmm. people, mm-hmm. his saved people at the end. Um, you know, unless again, you're saying that, that right. God is only going to collect Jewish people at yeah. the end. Yeah. Um, but the harvest imagery is imagery across the, across the Bible mm-hmm. for God collecting all of his redeemed people, which of course we know includes Gentiles right. as well as Jewish people. So it's, that would argue even in context of chapter 14, that the 144,000 is a picture of the mm-hmm. church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think that was nine or nine or ten there. I don't know, I think and I, I know a, you had others yeah, that you I couldn't remember. Here. Dan had them written down, and he. So we're just going off the top of our head, actually. <laughs> and there's there's even more arguments hypothetically yeah. that could be made. But. Yeah, and you know that can get kind of feel tedious and um, you know scholarly or something or you know yeah. academic. Uh, so the point you still want to step back and just be amazed by the fact yeah. of the reality of the passage, the teaching. That uh, those who are sealed on earth by God will stand before the throne, uh, and the picture is, is wonderful. They're sheltered by God. Their their eyes are wiped clean from the tears of the sorrows of the pain of life. Uh, the pilgrimage. The pilgrimage is rough, but yeah. those whom God gives the power to persevere through the ages will will be sheltered by Him. Yeah, I love the way you ended the service with that. Uh, uh, the the, the, from... the two, yeah. Yeah, I thought those two. Were I think a this really is a this is good a way po- to end it. This is a and this is a uh, helpful. This podcast can hopefully be a helpful way to help you feel like you can get a handle on the text of just letting Revelation interpret itself. Yeah, you just. I mean, you can as you read through the book, you can make the observations we're making here. But those quotes mm-hmm. that Dan is referencing in um, in the Lord of the Rings, there's a line um, where it, it talks about. Um, all the sad things will become untrue. Right, right. Um, and of course, Tolkien is a Christian reflecting on Christian ideas there. Mm-hmm. And then C.S. Lewis, I'm not quoting him here because I don't have it in front of me, but the paraphrase, I think this might be in The Great Divorce. Don't quote me on that. But he talks about um, how a lot of non-Christians, they'll object to the, to the biblical idea that the glory to come will outweigh and surpass all the suffering of this life that it will kind of put it mm-hmm. in perspective and make it seem so small like paul mm-hmm. says in romans 8 like it's not even worth comparing right, right. to the present suffering mm-hmm. um and and c.s lewis kind of reflecting on his buddy our uh tolkien there having a similar thought um says but they don't realize that in glory um it, things will then work backwards yeah. Yeah. and actually undo all the mm-hmm. all the sad things mm-hmm. And I think that's yeah. the idea of revelation yeah. is it's wiping away the tears, right. not just like, not just the idea of like, oh, we're not going to be sad anymore, but like, mm-hmm. it's actually the reversal of mm-hmm. all the evil that mm-hmm. had occurred. Yeah. 
So yeah, amen. all right. So next week we will um, we'll be getting into the trumpets, and we will pick up with the podcast there. We look forward to seeing you then. Thanks.